Hey, welcome to East Lake. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Brent. I'm teaching pastor, and this is part two of a series uh, we started last week called Beginnings. Uh, if you missed last week and you're interested, this stuff interests you, or you want, really want to listen to this one or send this to somebody else or something like that, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. All of the series that we've done for the last, I don't know how many months are up there, uh, as well as this one, and we'll continue to finish off the series in case you have to be gone. But um, the idea is that life is full of all kinds of beginnings, and I'm not talking about beginnings from nothing. I'm talking about a lot of times in our life, beginnings are a chance to redo something, um, a fresh start, we call it. Um, we're moving to a new area. We got out of a relationship. We're getting into a new relationship. Uh, we left a job. We're starting a new job, that kind of thing. Very, very few times are we engaging in life in what are true beginnings, something from nothing. Most of the time, it's kind of we're picking the pieces from the last time. And, and our goal is to do better this next time than we did the last time. Everybody wants to improve their life. That's not a, that's not a general insight. It's, a, it's just a reality that, uh, that we want to make sure that, especially if there's failure in the past, we want to make sure that that failure doesn't translate to our future. Right? We, we want to make sure what happened last time doesn't happen this time. But that doesn't happen by accident. Uh, you actually have to think through a few things and change some ways. Because if you do the same thing over and over again, we know the definition of insanity, right? Um, and so we, we recognize that there are a few things that we are going to address in this series that are going to help, hopefully, uh, address some assumptions uh, that need to be addressed so that that does not take place. Last week, we said that there are a couple of myths that we believe, um, a couple of examples or um, uh, things that, uh, assumptions that we carry into us. Uh, into the next thing. And if we're not careful, it's going to ruin uh, our efforts in the future endeavors. Number one is the experience myth. And this experience myth, the idea behind the experience myth is um, because I've done something one time, I'm more experienced as a result of it. And therefore, I'll probably do better next time. As if experience always equal, equals better. And that's just not true. If, if experience only makes you older, right? So it doesn't make you necessarily better. Evaluating experience um, makes you better and it helps you a, a long way. The number two myth was the I know better myth. And this is the idea that now I know better. I didn't know better, but now I've gained some sort of intellectual insights. And I am always true, this is the assumption, uh, the, 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 I am always true to my rational thinking in terms of my behavior, which is absolutely not true because whenever you've gone through the drive-thru, like I've gone through the drive-thru and you sit there and you're waiting, you're three cars deep and you're like, am I going to wait 10 minutes? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Even though I know I shouldn't, this food is probably killing me, but you know what? I know better. So, and yet I, I find myself in that spot. So I know better does not translate to anything. It has nothing to do with, you know, I know better does not mean I'm more disciplined. And I, I, I am able to take the information that is true and do anything different as a result of it. And lastly, the idea of time, uh, it's the time myth. And the time myth just says that uh, I'm running out of time. Like I, I need to take advantage of this uh, quickly. After all, I'm looking around me and because of social media, I'm able to see kind of the status of everybody else and what they're being able to do with this. And I don't want to be left behind. The, the world moves at such a frenetic pace right now. If I don't do this, um, I'm going to be late to the party. And that is not exciting. I don't want to be 30 and single. And then it's like, I don't want to be 35 and single. I don't want to be 40 and single. Uh, and it just keeps moving. All these targets keep changing. And, and uh, so that's a difficult thing. So, all right, that was last week. Uh, this week, we're gonna I'm, I'm going to translate uh, or transition to talking about what do you do in response. Last week was create a problem. Can you feel the tension? Can you feel like I need some resolution with this? Then we take steps towards resolution. There's basically three things we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. Owning it, rethinking it, and releasing it. Owning it, rethinking it, releasing it. Owning it, re uh, rethinking it, and releasing it. Today is the idea of owning up to your blame. And here's the thesis. Here's the, if you got to leave early, um, here's the point of the talk, okay? In order to make sure your past 
doesn't repeat itself into your future, you need to pause long enough in your life to be able to own your part of the blame. If you want your future to look different than your past, and you've got a new beginning that you get to start, it would be worth your time. It would be a worthy investment for you to pause and own up to your piece of the blame and figure out what went wrong in this. Now, I know there's a lot of blame to go around. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about that. And here's the reason why. The reason we don't do this, the reason I have to talk about it and people will be like, yep, I do, I do, I do. The reason we don't do this is because there's nothing to own. It's not my fault, right? The reason we don't already do this, the reason that we need this information or need this inspiration is because there's nothing to own. It's not any of my fault. It's not my fault, right? I get it. I have heard so many stories about, well, I, if I didn't know that there was an addiction thing going on, right? I, it's not my fault that he had something that he was just unwilling to let go. It's not my fault. She distracted herself out of love. Like we were in love and, um, and all of a sudden, like I, I realized that um, it, was, it was like this game that we were living. Like we were in love. I thought we were in love. And then it became all of these like pictures on this highlight reel on social media that she just kept pushing us. And can we smile for these photos? I want to make sure everybody thinks that we're a happy couple and we're not a happy, but we're not a happy couple, but we don't want people to not know that. Right. And so we got to take these pictures and all this, all this kind of stuff. We, we, we recognize that there are some things that have, that come out when two people begin to live together or be around each other or in close proximity with each other for an extended period of time, the true self, the true nature comes through. And eventually there are things that you don't like about that person. Things that rub you the wrong way. And all of this are things that just, I have no control over it. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. That teacher, the reason I didn't pass the class is because she's impossible. Like her expectations are ridiculous. She's completely unfair. Dad, I promise I tried. I gave it my best. And it's just impossible to take a class. I know that other people in the class passed. I don't know how that worked. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I think there's bribery involved. I think she, they're paying them off. Or, uh, and I, I don't want to stoop to that level. Um, but so I have all kinds of reasons why it's not my fault. All, it's nothing to own for me. But, uh, and the reason we do this is because there's always a better story to tell than the truth. We could tell the truth, but there's a better story to tell, a story that kind of shifts the blame in other ways and in other places and on other people. Nobody likes to tell a story about how they screwed up. I don't blame you. Listen, that's not exciting. You don't look forward to that. You don't wake up in the morning and be like, I cannot wait to post an honesty story about where I'm at in terms of my fitness or my intellectual level or my bank account on social media and let everybody know where I stand. That's not fun. It's not cool. You don't want to post the before pictures until the after pictures are already done. Then you're really proud to show before and after. But a lot of times we don't like to post the before, you know, before I found this rap or before I found this diet, right? Sometimes we do just to like, oh, challenge ourselves, but it's not, it's not exciting. It's not like, oh man, I cannot wait to tell this. It's like, I'm going to shame. I'm going to put myself in so much shame that maybe I'll be motivated to do something as a result of this. Instead, most of the time we fall into telling the story of the our side, the side of the story that fits our uh, perception best or our image best. That's what we try and do. But the reality is, or the point of all of this, the thing I want to talk about today is I really do think, I want you to be better. I want you to have a better shot moving forward. I think that God wants to shape us into the type of people who get life better, understand how life works, principles work, and have a better shot at making a successful beginning the next time around. 
And so therefore your best bet for successful future is to own your share of your past. Your best bet is to own your share of your past. Now, uh, in order to like develop some personal insights on this, it's, we're going to look at a story that comes from the very first book of the Bible. It's a book called Genesis. It's, it's like the easiest book in the Bible to find because you just turn a few pages, right? You flip the cover over, boom, you're there. You're so smart. Uh, you know how to navigate this already. Um, Genesis just simply means beginnings or origins. I mean, that's like the actual like definition of the term. And so it's just a book on origins, a book on beginnings. So super relevant for this series. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a, uh, a story that's involved in the very first three chapters. In fact, Genesis chapter three is where primarily the story comes from. A story on two people called Adam and Eve. And the reason those names sound familiar is because you have heard this story. And I don't care if you're like, I've never set foot in church in my life. Somebody bribed me to come today. You, you know the concept of Adam and Eve. And if you grew up in church, you know it really well. You could, I, like, I, even, I even thought in my mind, I don't even know if I'm gonna put verses on the screen because it feels like a waste of our time. Because it feels like, yeah, 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 I know how this works, dude. I'm on it. I'm, I get it. You're already tracking with me. Garden, tree, fruit, naked, snake, eat, shame. We're out of here. Let's go watch some football, right? That's what, that's what I felt like is somewhat true. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, this is, again, this is still a story that resonates with us. And I think it's because it's such a powerful story. It takes up a page and a half maximum of whatever Bible you own at home. And yet, if you were to ask a general person, give me like five stories from the Bible, this may be one of the ones that make like the top five list. In terms of fine art and paintings from antiquity, when, when, when uh, I read this book over the holidays uh, called The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, and one of the things that this author talks about is um, how prominent the artistic expression of Adam and Eve was for um, secular and Christian people, Christian artists throughout the years. There are so many pictures of Adam and Eve. Why? It's intriguing. It's this story that like resonates with us at our core. It's kind of different. There's like unique things about it. And if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you took a, a world civilizations class like I did at, at CBC with Dr. Chisholm, who's still there, by the way. He was in one of the plays that was in here uh, a few um, months ago, maybe a year ago or so with Rude Mechanicals. Dr. Chisholm, eight o'clock in the morning, world civilizations. We'd walk in. He'd be up there in the front. He'd be at a podium type thing. He'd have a flannel shirt on every morning, unbuttoned down to the third button, red chest hair, popping out at eight in the morning. <laughs> Sight you will not forget, right? And he'd sit there and he would talk about these world civilizations. And as he would, he would be finger braiding his, his chest hair. I, I do remember this because I, I, at first, like the first couple classes you're looking forward, you're like, I, maybe my contacts aren't in. Is he, is he like, is that a French braid? What's, what's going on? How? One-handed. That's amazing. Anyways, he sits up there, he begins to talk about um, ancient civilizations and world civilizations and all of these things. And he knows who he's dealing with, right? He's a professor. He's dealing with all these incoming students, students who think that they kind of have it all together. And he, he knows he's, uh, he is in a very conservative part of the state um, and so he begins to pop the bubbles, intellectual bubbles, and, and religious is one of those, right? That's kind of one of those things that you, you went to college, you had some sort of English professor be like, tell me what you believe, and be like, pop, I'm going to pop that bubble for you real quick. I'm gonna, all that thing you thought was true, let me just talk to you about that. So he, I remember he started this class off and talks about how, um, you know, most of you are familiar with the, uh, Noah, the story of, the, of Noah in the Bible, the, the flood that kills everything off. Did you know that 
prior to the Jewish people collecting that in their kind of collection of um, holy scriptures, the Tanakh, as they would call it, or the Torah, the first five books. Did you know that that story existed as a uh, story, a creation story in the, this, I, this Babylonian epic called Gilgamesh, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years prior to the Hebrew people? So you think that that story is so unique to scripture. Let me just pop that bubble for you. Did you know that the creation story about Adam and Eve and a garden and this world that's being made, that there are competing creation stories going on in this culture, specifically one called the Enuma Elish, that these, this war took place and out of that comes this creation. Creation story wasn't unique to, um, to the holy scriptures of Judaism. It, it is beyond that. And so he's just sitting over there just like playing with your mind doing this. And he talks about how the ancient cultures would create these myths. And myth is, not, is a loaded term because a lot of times we, we conclude that myths mean not real. Um, we think of unicorns as a myth. Uh, or leprechauns as a myth, but uh, it's not that it's not real. Myths in ancient cultures were developed to be able to shape and inform a people group about where they came from and what they were like and who they were supposed to be. So if you watched um, the movie 300 that came out like, I don't know how many years ago now, like the Spartan Spartan people who were warriors, right? There's a Spartan myth that took place that about this defense against all odds. And they, 300 men fought against however many thousands of men and they won to try and shape and instill in their young that we are tough people, that we are fighters, that we are warriors, right? Myths have this, this shaping ability that, that um, you, you have stories growing up as a childhood, as, as a child in your childhood that you know, like aren't real, but they shaped who you are. That, that you, were, you acted um, differently as a result of it. You talk, I've talked to teachers before, and they say it's important to read to your kids fiction books, not because they're not real, and you don't have to be able to say, well, now, kid, this isn't real. Once upon a time, these stories teach your kids to have empathy. If all your kids read is nonfiction, they'll have a very scientific mind in deducing, but it will, they will lack that sort of empathy. You need to be kind of more well-rounded in this. These stories shape us. So I say all that because if I, I'm about to talk about Adam and Eve, and if you come from this perspective where you, it's, you're a church person, so like I, I just talk about it, and you're, I'm game, let's do it, let's talk about it. I also know that there may be people in here going, I don't know, man. I mean, it seems weird. Two naked people just hanging out in a garden. Sounds like Portland. Doesn't sound like Tri-Cities. <laughs> Try and do that around here. You're going to get arrested, brother. You know, um, I get it. I, I, I understand. I think that this story, whether, first of all, we created East Lake to be a safe place for all kinds of these kinds of opinions, right? You can be heavily opinion in this way and this way. You can vote this way or this way. Hopefully we are uh, a safe enough place where uh, on, on both sides of the aisle of belief that we're like, all right, it's fine. Great. It's just for us, it's a, a matter of opinion in that way, right? All right. Even if that is true, even if that's true, I still think that there's massive value in the shaping narrative of a myth like this. And, and I, I, I'll approach it as such for the sake of today, because I think the story of Adam and Eve teaches us so many unique things about human insight. It is hard to believe that it's thousands of years old because it feels so true to today. Um, the story is fairly simple. God creates a garden. He begins with animals. He, on the last day or sixth day of creation, he creates man. He puts him in the garden, says, um, basically steward all of this. Be fruitful and multiply. Have lots of kids and enjoy 
um, this life that I've created for you. And then that this is where the story takes like a, ooh, okay, this makes it kind of more real and more realistic. He creates a rule. And we know the rule is don't eat from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And I know there's a lot of pushback for me as a kid, like why would you create something and then, and then create a rule for it? Like if it's going to be free, it's going to be all free, or it's not going to be. Uh, and then the other side of things is as I kind of got older, I thought, gosh, why are there not more rules? It feels like if you were going to really truly protect your creation, you would want more rules than that. I cannot get in the hot tub at my gym without reading a list of 12 different rules, right? Got to shower before you get in, can't be in here for more than 20 minutes, and no open wounds because that's disgusting. And, you know, figure it out. Don't do that. You know what I mean? There are so many rules in that we're kind of used to it. So for us to see something where it would be like, well, there's only really one rule, everything else is fair game, that's an intriguing story. That should make us lean in a little bit more. And human insight number one is this. Anytime you're told about, well, there's only one rule, there is something in you and there is something in me that immediately is drawn towards that one rule in a very negative way. If you are a parent of a child and you say, do not touch this, this is hot coffee your child immediately goes, in spite of all of the toys that you have purchased for them over the years, there are thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars, whatever it is, of toys in this room, and there's one small hot cup of gonna burn your lips coffee right there. And you say, don't touch. And they don't wanna play with anything preschool or anything like that. It's immediately right here, right? What, this? You don't want me to touch this? Why, why wouldn't you want me to touch this? Put it down. Put it down. Why would you not want me to touch that, Dad? Because, Grayson, it will burn you. It will scald you. Do not pick this up. Why? If I pick it up, what happens? Oh, my gosh, kid. Are you kidding me, right? And if it, my wife is so much better than this because she knows. She'll be like, all right, well, we got this one thing. Don't, don't say anything about it. Don't bring it up. Why would you bring it up? That's your, that's your fault. That you, at this point, this is about you, not him. You've set him up for failure by talking about the one thing. Why? Because... Listen, the reason this story is so intriguing for us is we get it. Every once in a while when you watch a movie, at the conclusion of the movie, you will say to yourself, I, or a, a television show or whatever, I don't think, I think it lacked in character development. Those characters, they wrote, the way that the author or the screenwriter or whatever wrote those characters, they kind of acted in a way not really true to who they were. They needed to develop that character a little bit more because I don't understand why he would leave or she would choose him or that would happen in that way. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's on the fault of the author or the screenwriter. But in this scenario, like when somebody goes, don't touch that one thing, and then he does it, We've all been there. And so we say, this makes so much sense. I get this. Human insight number one, we gravitate towards that which we know we ought not do. The reason this story jumps off the pages and the reason I think it's, it's powerful, even if it's true or it's just a myth or whatever, is because it speaks so much about who we are and what we're like. We do this. As soon as we know we're not supposed to do something, that's the thing that we find ourselves doing. Human insight number two is this. There's something wrong with you, and there's something wrong with me. When I first wrote this down, I just said to write, I, I wanted to write, there's something wrong with you, but it felt very accusatory. It felt like I was up here going, you guys, there's something wrong with you. You got to figure this out, because obviously I've got it together, and the band has it together. Um, so, 
And that's just so not true, you guys. They do not have it together. I promise you. I have some stories about Eric that there's something wrong with each of us. The insight of this story for us is that we get it. Nobody walked in this room really thinking, um, like, I'm, I've got it all together. Like, I'm perfect. It's, it's, it's definitely more like we, we get it. Like, we understand we can't even keep our own rules. Why would they break this rule? Well, because we don't even keep our own rules. We, we set up these like expectations for our couple. We saw, call them resolutions at the beginning of the year. And our resolutions are, we're going to, let's see, you know what we're going to do? Starting January 1st, I'm going to go to bed earlier. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to run more. I'm going to be more productive with my time. And we find ourselves watching Sports Center at midnight, scarfing down Rocky Road ice cream on a couch. That's what we do, right? We can't even keep our own rules. We know. We get it. Again, this story makes so much sense for us. There's something wrong with you and then with me. Genesis chapter three. At this point, um, I, I will uh, jump into the actual text of scripture. At, at first I thought I won't because everybody knows the story, but there's some cool insights in here that I think are important. Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Again, this is after he's put him in the garden, said there's a tree, don't touch it. She has been approached by, from this like serpent snake type thing. Uh, and then there, she is offered this fruit. She eats it. She hands it to Adam. He eats it. Boom. That's all been covered. We're moving on from that. This is after that now, right? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, and they hid from the Lord God. They hid from God among the trees. And I want to say like in parentheses that he created among the trees that he knows about. And he knows exactly where all of this is taking place. Right. And this is human insight. Number three, when we do something wrong, we tend to hide. And I wanted to add this in the most like stupid places ever. Right. In, in, in the dumbest mode, in the dumbest way possible, when we do something wrong, we find ourselves hiding. This is not out of character for them again. This is human nature. In, in today's terms, we don't hide in a garden. We hide in other ways. We stop answering our phone when people call. We become insulated off to the world. We shut down our social media pages. This is kind of this new phenomenon. When you hear about something that somebody did, they're going through like, there's like this, this infidelity or this affair or something like that. It's like, there's massive drama and you're like, ooh, there's so much drama. Instead of calling him, I'll just search for him on the internet. Oh, he's not on Facebook anymore. Oh, it must be serious. <laughs> Why? Because when we find ourselves doing something wrong, we hide. We find ourselves hiding. And when they mess up, God goes looking for them. Verse 9 and 10, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Not like, like I honestly don't know where you are, guys. Are you, are you lost? <laughs> this is, that's not what's going on here. This is you playing with your kid who's hiding behind the lamp, and you can see 90% of his body, and you're going, where are you? And they're like, <laughs> you know, doing that thing. Where are you? <clears throat> He answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I messed up, because I ate the fruit, because I broke the one, I know you only gave me one rule and I'm an idiot and I broke it because I wronged you. I did the one thing you didn't want me to do. Nope. Here's what he says. Because I was naked, so I hid. What does that have to do with anything? 
That's a great question. Because there's like, there's this part of this story where they're naked and then all of a sudden, then this thing happens and then they're aware, they're aware of their nakedness, which is always like, how did that happen? All of a sudden they ate a fruit and they're like, whoa, boobs. You know what I mean? Like, how, <laughs> what, what is that about? Um, and it has to do more with shame. It has to do with all of a sudden there's something wrong with me. So even in this verbiage for, for Jewish people growing up, it wasn't that they, they all of a sudden saw that they weren't clothed anymore. It was more of a sense of shame. And this should now be shaming for me. It wasn't shaming before, but now it somehow is. I was naked, so I hid. Human insight number four, this next verse is going to show us this insight. Ready? When we get caught, we deflect and redirect. We, 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 we know, we gravitate toward the thing we don't want to do. We find ourselves doing it. When we do it, we hide. And then when we get caught, we say, we're sorry, but I'm so sorry. And then we never end it there, do we? I'm so sorry, but let me tell you how this happened. But... I got a huge butt I want to tell you about. Ready? Here's, here it is, but mm, I was coaxed into this. It's not my fault, but she was part of it, and I'm not the only one, and everybody else was doing it, and it seemed right at the time, but, 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 but. Verse 11, and he said, God said, and who told you you were naked? Who told you you were shamed? Who told you you were in the wrong? Have you eaten from the truth that I commanded you not to eat from? Listen to Adam's response to that question. Have you done this? And he said, or sorry, next one. Adam said, yes, I did. And I take full responsibility for my actions. Do with me as you will, but leave Eve out of this because she is innocent. <laughs> and if you're laughing, it's because you grew up in church and you know that that's not how the story ends. <laughs> or you know, you know you, you're familiar enough with the story to realize this is ridiculous because this isn't how it went at all. Here's, a, here's the actual translation. The man said, the woman, her fault, the, <laughs> ah, did you do this? Hold on, hold up. Yes, I did. But the woman that, by the way, you put with me, now that I think about it, it's your fault. It's like your fault. It's her fault. It's what, it's, you two work it out. You come to me and apologize to me, and then I'll profess forgiveness for you. And then we can move on from this silly, silly thing. The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and yeah, I ate it, but really it's her fault. And again, it's kind of your fault with all of this. Now, here's the thing about this thing. This is the insight. When we, when the spotlight is on us, when we, when our wrong has been highlighted, our tendency is to redirect and blame something or someone else as much as we can. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And when we do it, sometimes we will use phrases that are actually true. Think about this. Read this again. Is this true? All of it is true. Yes, he created the woman. Yes, he put her with me. Yes, she ate. Yes, she gave it to me. And yes, I ate it. All of this is true. But you know, and I know, it's not the whole truth. When you get caught, when you, when you, when you do something that's wrong, our initial reaction is to blame. And when we begin the blaming process, we will state some things that are mostly true. We all want to tell a story that is mostly true. 
When you, when you hang out with your best friend later on and she looks at you and, and you're, you're split up right now and there's some stuff going on in your life and, you're, and, and uh, you, you lost your job because of an addiction, you lost your job because of this or whatever, and, and she looks at you and goes, what happened, what happened? You will be tempted to tell a story that's mostly true. It's just not the whole truth because we have a tendency and we're inclined to redirect, shift the blame, point out the truth about other things to say, well, there's more to the story than just me. I have a reason for doing this. And if you tell a story long enough, you convince even yourself that it's the whole story. If you will say this long enough, eventually you get to the spot where you'd be like, yeah, that is true. That is how it worked. That is the truth and you delude even yourself. It doesn't start out that way. You start out that way knowing in the back of your mind, I'm kind of cheating, but this is the story that sounds better. This is a better story that I want to tell. It hurts too much right now to tell the other story. If you don't pause and take ownership, you will undermine your own future. The reason that this is dangerous, the reason that all of these human insights into our human psyche, and the reason that this story is so powerful, even if you think it's not actually, didn't actually happen, it's not real, the reason I think the Jewish people thought, well, there's enough value in this that we probably need to keep this forever and have this be one of the central stories that's talked about early on in these passages because of what it says about who we are as a human being, that we have the tendency to do all of these things things. And if you will not tell the whole story, if you will participate in the blame game, what happens is blame enables us to smuggle our issues, our dysfunctions, and our bad habits into our future. It's completely natural for us to do this. We have all the reasons why all human insight one through four puts us in a position to be able to do this and think that it makes sense for us. And yet when we do it, all we're doing is simply smuggling in our flaws into the next thing. And then we want the next thing to be any different than the first time, but we haven't done the hard work of addressing it. We haven't done the hard work of owning up to our own personal blame. That's just not how it works. Blame sets us up for a repeat performance. It sets us up for a repeat performance. Now, in order to illustrate this, I want to show you what I've called the pie chart of blame. Brandon's going to help me. He's coming up. He's got some some, uh, figures in terms of evaluating things in our life that we're not especially proud of, stories, things, uh, we tend to do a couple of things. Thanks, buddy. Welcome to the pie chart of blame. And when we tell, when we address the faults of whose fault it is and what happened, then we tend to do this right here. Well, here's the deal. It's about 50-50. 50 of it's my fault. And 50 of it's not my fault. There's other factors around it. Now, none of you do this, okay? None of us do this. This is a little bit more in the right direction. I mean, definitely my fault, like 25% my fault, but like so much, like three times as much other people's fault or other circumstances' fault. But even this is really generous. Like, if you do this, you're really in touch with yourself and good. This, though, this is very much she's an idiot. (laughs) And I I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. This is the classic example of, "Eh, I'm not perfect, but let me tell you about all that around it. I'm just going to leave this up here just because I feel like this is important for us. (laughs) 
That is so true in how we live and how if we're not in time, if, if we don't care about our future, if we don't care about making the next time uh, like the last time uh, or, not, uh, or unlike the last time, then go ahead and keep doing this. That's fine. But don't be surprised when you're like, oh, this marriage is broken too. Oh, this relationship's broken too. Oh, I still can't keep this job. Oh, I still, I still, I still, I still. Don't be surprised. That's what it is. You make peace with your past by owning your peace of the past. You make peace with your past by owning your peace of the past. And when people come to me and they're like, they, uh, they've got this story. Listen, I, I get it, man. I've heard all kinds of, well, let me tell you how I got in this way. I need somebody to hear my story out. I need somebody to listen. And, and I've heard some things where, uh, like that not me section is horrible. Like you really have been dealt like a horrible hand at life. And, and we know that there are, there's unavoidable pain in life um, and it hurt people, hurt people. And so I, um, that's absolutely true. And I, I don't want to spend, I, I could sit there and be like, I'm so sorry. And, and I am, I'm, I'm sorry that that thing that happened to you. I'm sorry that he's that way. I'm sorry that she's that way. I'm sorry that your boss is that way. I'm sorry that your kids turned out that way. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but you have no control. You can't do anything about their piece of the puzzle. And even a secular non-Christian counselor would be like, what are you going to do about that part of the thing that you can control? You'll be stressed out if you spend your time focusing on what you cannot solve. If you could just channel those emotions and that passion into addressing the thing that you can, I think you'd be better off for it. Which is essentially a way of saying, owning your piece of the past is a way to keep the past in the past and not as a part of your future, if you are willing to do this. But as we've learned, it's not easy to do so because even a book that is a thousand years old or several thousand years old, and in the case of Genesis, I mean, as old as it comes, this is going to go against everything in your natural human nature to want to do. You don't choose to redirect and blame. You've been conditioned to do that through life. To own your piece of the puzzle that takes work. To own your piece of the pie chart of blame, that's different. That will not come naturally. That will only happen by choice and by the grace of God in each and every one of our lives to say, help me do what I can do. I came up with a few examples, a few phrases. If you've, how do you know if you're doing this? Um, and how do you know what are some phrases that I could say that would prove to me that I'm, instead of shifting the blame, instead owning up to this and making this a priority for me of owning my piece of the past? If you ever found yourself, if you could find yourself saying something like this, I had a feeling that something wasn't right, but I was afraid to dig around and discover the truth because I had already made up my mind and that was something that I wanted to do. If you were sitting across a coffee shop with your best friend and they said to you, well, so what happened, man? So what happened? And you looked them straight in the eye and with all sincerity and all honesty said, I knew something was up, but once I get my mind set on something, 
I find myself doing it regardless of the wisdom of other people. I had some people speaking into my life and I chose not to listen to them. That was me. Um, yep, I did it. Uh, and the truth is, I was lonely. Yep, I was just lonely. The truth is, I was jealous. Here's the truth. I have not properly dealt with the jealousy of that family member. And I don't think it's fair that they got this and I got this. So it's just jealousy. I should have confronted him. I was afraid. By staying in the relationship, I kind of enabled him. By staying in the relationship, I enabled her. That's the truth about it. I should have left, but I'd, I didn't know where I'd go. So I just stayed. It's my fault. Uh, it was just lust. It's embarrassing to admit it. It's like socially acceptable when you're like 16, 18, 21, but now I've got a family. I've got a mortgage. I've got a life. I've got a reputation at stake. And it was simply, purely, base lust. That's all it is. I should have left. I was embarrassed. I chose to stay. I thought I could handle it. I lied to myself. If you could find yourself saying something along those lines, with all sincerity and with all honesty, you would put yourself in a position to own your past and refuse to allow it to be smuggled into your future. And it will not be easy because owning it goes against everything about our nature. And yet, I think God found it important to include it almost at the beginning as a way of saying, you cannot miss this. Don't miss this. Own your peace of your past. Only by doing so will you be able to make peace with your past. Don't smuggle your past into your future. Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy one to hear because we all can point to scenarios in our life where we did the exact opposite of this. We have got perhaps patterns of our behavior that reflect exactly the opposite of this behavior. And therefore, we should not be surprised that this new beginning looks a lot like our last beginning. This new relationship looks a lot like our last relationship. We pray that you would help us. This is not like try harder. This is, God, please, I want this. I need this. I'm asking for a new heart to be able to love this enough to be able to do the things I know are difficult but are right when it comes to not deflecting blame but owning my piece of the past in order to make peace with my past. Give me the wisdom. Give us the wisdom individually, corporately, to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.